Lights, and you're listening to P.S. Tape Recorder. Hello there, I'm P.F., this is my tape recorder, and welcome to another special edition of the tape recorder. Uh, This episode is going to be part of a uh, small series we're going to do on the history of synth pop. Now, it may be interspersed with uh, interviews with uh, comedians and stuff completely unrelated to synth pop or music, for that matter, because normally this is a comedy podcast, so if I can find some of my comedian friends to interview, we'll do that. Or uh, maybe we'll get Professor Rock on finally. I keep trying to reach out to him. Uh, Check out his YouTube channel. It's really, really good. And uh, hopefully we'll get him on as well. But in the meantime, we're going to crack on with what I believe will be a three or four part series. I'm not sure. Uh, The history of synth pop. And we're going to start with, uh, well, the beginning of time, basically, up until up through the 1960s. Uh, So for historical purposes, and I've been working on this for weeks, trying to keep it, you know, focused and trying to not go too far off the the path here. And I think I've put together a pretty good presentation for you. Um, I didn't realize that the uh, electricity and music uh, go way back, almost to the discovery of electricity. Uh, They started trying to use, folks started trying to use electricity uh, in musical instruments. But for our purposes, we're going to start uh, in 1920 with the invention of the theremin. The theremin, you may know from the theme from Star Trek, and you may think you know it from Good Vibrations by the Beach Boys, but what the theremin is, it's these two, I guess, real thin, almost like little antennas, and you wave your hand between it, and it makes a sound, and as you move your hand through the, between the two, uh, it causes the waveform to oscillate, and that's how you get your sound. Uh, It is not actually used in Good Vibrations. I believe an actual theremin is used for the Star Trek theme, but that may be an electric theremin, which we will discuss later. Uh, 1927, something called the Rob Wave Organ comes out. That uses electricity The electric piano comes out in 1929, but it's not really considered an electronic instrument for some reason. And then probably the most famous, I guess, electric instrument of its time, apart from the guitar, which comes out, uh, I believe, in the 1940s, we get the electric guitar, maybe the 30s. But the Hammond organ, uh, that comes out in 1935, and the B3 is the most popular version of that. It is used by, I believe, Spencer Davis, uh, definitely by Booker T, definitely by Billy Preston. Um, I believe the Doors used one, but then I read later they used a, a Vox Continental. We'll discuss that later. But um, well, uh, for our purposes here, uh, the Hammond B3. Give you a little sample of this. Uh, this is Booker T. Time is tight. Uh, this is also recognized as the Blues Brothers theme, but it uses a Hammond organ. And here you go. Time is tight, I believe that's from the late 1960s. The other big hit, of course, was uh, uh, Green Onions. That's the, the big tune they're known for, which is also has a big Hammond uh, keyboard riff. Uh, 1939, we go, it's really considered to be the first synthesizer with the Hammond Novacord. Again, that's 1939. And from the Wikipedia description, I can tell you that it used about 170 vacuum tubes, coils, capacitors, and resistors, largely to create an upper octave of notes and then divide them in half using a flip-flop circuit to create successively lower octaves from each note. So the instrument had many features. It had like envelopes, filters, amplifiers, all the stuff you'll find on later synthesizers. 
synthesizers. Uh, so the sounds could be contoured at the user's discretion. So it really makes it the first synthesizer. That's really what the definition of a synthesizer is. Like the Hammond organ can only, you know, play certain organ sounds and electric piano can only do certain sounds. But with, with the, I guess with the Novacord, you could really uh, monkey with those. RCA comes out with something called the Storyphone in 1939. We get the on on the line in 1941, invented by George Jenny, it's considered to be the first portable synthesizer. The Clavioline comes along in 1947, it's invented by a French dude. Uh, some Canadian bloke gives us the Chamberlain in 1949, which will compete later with the Mellotron. Uh, the Electric Theremin comes out in the 1950s. We'll get to that when we discuss the Beach Boys in a little bit. And then uh, RCA comes out with something called the RCA Mark II. I guess it's the Mark II because it's the second one after the story phone. But it uses punch cards to read notes, so it's just kind of strange. And then Vox in 1962 makes a, uh, a keyboard... But it's, uh, they're mo mostly known for amplifiers and other musical instruments like that. I think they also might make drums. But uh, they bring out an electric piano that is used by a lot of groups. And the Mellotron comes out in 1963. It is a synthesizer of sorts in that it uses tape loops. Uh, you, it's like a keyboard, but when you press the keys, it presses against a tape loop, and there's different sounds you can use. And that's kind of like, it's almost kind of a sampler in a way, because you could make the tape loops anything you want. And then finally, in 1964, uh, we get the Moog. The Moog uh, is a keyboard, but it relies on being plugged into different modules that can be adjusted to make different sounds. And for musically, uh, for our journey, we're going to start in 1961 with a song that isn't really, I say it, a techno-pop song, but uh, I believe that it... it it marked kind of the beginning of sort of the wider acceptance. We've had we had piano players in rock and roll, certainly, with uh, Little Richard and uh, the, the Killer Jerry Lee Lewis. Uh, so, but as far as having you know more non-piano but keyboard sounds, that the first song to really uh, become a big hit to use that is "Runaway" by Del Shannon, which of course is very much a guitar song with that great opening riff. But then also uses Max Cook as was his keyboardist and he uses a clavillon to uh, give us this fantastic burst. <laughs> What a great keyboarder. If you can find it, Del Shannon performed on the David Letterman show in 1986. Uh, the song was re-released because uh, it had become the theme, show, the theme song for one of my favorite TV shows, Crime Story. The words were changed. Weirdly, the keyboard part is taken out, and as that bridge is done on guitar, and uh, like the lyrics are changed. Uh, but Del Shannon performs it, and it's the theme for a crime story. Anyway, he performs it on um, the David Letterman show, the old late, uh, late what was it, late night? I don't know what it was called, Late Night with David Letterman. Yeah, the old NBC show in 86. And Paul Schaefer plays that riff in the middle. Whoo, fantastic. I'm pretty sure you can find that on YouTube. All right, so, but our first, what we were going to consider our first synth-pop song ever, or at least one of note, is going to be by uh, a guy named Joe Meek. Uh, he has a group called The Tornadoes that he writes and produces for. And the song is called Telstar. No one actually knows what the keyboard on this is. It is either a clavio line or it is a Vox electric uh, piano, or it's both. 
No one knows for sure. But this is it's an instrumental. It goes to number one in the US and the UK, I believe. And many people consider this to really be the first synth pop song. This is Telstar. Telstar, uh, the tornado stuff isn't a lot like that. It's it's they were really a traditional guitar, bass, and drum band, but they used the clavio line or the Vox or both uh, in other recordings as well. So uh, kind of alluding to what's going to happen in the with new wave in the '80s, where you know almost keyboard bands are going to kind of start using other instruments, but be mostly keyboards. I kind of think it's what the tornadoes uh, were doing. The next big song that comes up is uh, not really a song so much as a soundscape, but it is a song. It's and it's a theme song to a very popular television show uh, called Doctor Who. Now, the Doctor Who theme is an actual song composed by an Australian gentleman named Ron Grainer, but the whole piece is built by a lady that worked at the BBC Radiophonic Workshop named Delia Derbyshire, and no musical instruments are played on it. It is all uh, tape manipulation and all kinds of uh, electronics are used to create the song. It, of course, it's since you know been played on regular instruments, and I think the newer versions you hear on television are actually played on a keyboard. But uh, the very first one released in 1963 uh, were not. So, uh, and another fun uh, thing about this is that when Ron Grainer actually heard uh, Delia Derbyshire's finished work, he's like, wow, did I write that? And she's like, well, pretty much. <laughs> so he tried for years and years to get her a solo writing, uh, no, so, I mean, a co-writing credit on the song. He's just listed as the songwriter, but he's like, well, she really did a lot of work on this and added stuff to it. She really co-wrote the song. And the BBC was like, nope, can't do that. So I think that that finally, finally, finally got reversed a couple of years ago. Um, but yeah, for, for years he fought to get her uh, co-writing credit on the song. But anyway, uh, probably one of the most famous theme songs in history. Certainly if you're British, it's a very famous theme song. And this is, uh, this too, I guess, is considered another a landmark piece of electronic music. This is the Doctor Who theme.
there's the original Doctor Who theme from 1963. I don't know uh, how well it did on the charts. I should look that up. Um, we really don't get a lot of, uh, of keyboards and electronics in music, though, even though there's kind of an interest from, you know, Telstar and, and Doctor Who. Uh, the Beach Boys, we are up to now with uh, Good Vibrations in 1966 following Pet Sounds, use a th- what people say is a theremin. Turns out it's an electric theremin. The difference being, as I explained before, the theremin, you pass your hand between these two uh, wires, as, or these two, like, antenna looking things, the uh, the electric theremin is actually, you place your finger on it and slide your finger back and forth, so it's a lot easier to control, and this is what they use on good vibrations, and uh, you can hear it at the end of the song, and well, here's that. I'm picking up good vibrations, she's giving me the excitations, I'm picking up good vibrations, So there's the, the electric theremin being used on Good Vibrations. The Beach Boys will also use it in a song called Wild Honey, where it kind of takes a much more prominent role in the following year. It's the title track from that album in 1967. Here's a little blast of Wild Honey. So there are groups out there using, like I said, the Hammond B3, Spencer Davis, um, uh, Booker T and the MGs. They're all doing that. So there's, and the Doors are going to start using that as kind of the basis for their sound in the late 60s and early 70s. So there's there's some interest in stuff that isn't strictly guitar music, but it isn't as much as you would think, probably because, uh, you know, the Moog at this time is still prohibitively expensive. Now, uh, we touched on the Mellotron. A, f- a few minutes ago. I'm going to give you a little blast of a song from the Beatles. They really only used it, I think, on two songs. Well, and this is one of them. Let me take you down Cause I'm going to Strawberry field Nothing is real And nothing to get hung about Strawberry fields forever Standing 
Strawberry Fields, of course, that Mellotron is actually sitting in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland, Ohio. You can look at it. And for all that effort, I don't know if the Beatles owned that Mellotron or if it's happened to be in the Abbey Road studio, but that's really, they used it, I think, on maybe two or three other songs, but that was it. Uh, They brought in Billy Preston, of course, to play the Hammond B3 on a lot of records. So again, an interest in having more than just guitar on rock and roll records, but it still isn't really taking hold. 1967, we also have the Monkees. The Monkees have a lot of money behind them, and therefore they can use studios that have all this great electronic equipment. And of course, one of them is a a big Moog synthesizer. And again, still horrifically expensive at this point. And it's it's a keyboard, you plug little patch cords into it, and they use it on two songs on their album, Pisces, Aquarius, Capricorn, and Jones, that features uh, the songs Daily Nightly and Star Collector. Now, Daily Nightly, um, I believe, is a song written by Mike Nesmith. You may recall they had some uh, issues. They, a lot of the songs were written for them by top songwriters. They wanted to be more involved. And uh, Mike Nesmith of the band wrote Daily Nightly. And this was really cool about Daily Nightly versus Star Collector is it really gives you an indication of how the movie is being used at this point, the two different ways. One, it's being used just to make weird sound effects and psychedelic sounds, which are very popular at the time. And then the other ways it's being used is as an actual instrument to play melodies. So I'll give you Daily Nightly first. Mickey Dolenz gets, he's usually the drummer and uh, one of the vocalists in the monkeys. He plays the Moog on Daily Nightly and just gets these really crazy weird sound effects out of it. So here you go. Here is Daily Nightly by the Monkees. There's Daily Nightly, like I said, it's using the Moog more just to make sound effects and kind of weird spacey noises. Star Collector is another tune uh, on the album, of course, I said, that uses the Moog. Uh, in both cases, the Moog was, po- was um, programmed by a fellow named Paul Beaver, and he was a session musician and uh, Moog expert. He actually plays on Star Collector, though. He's going to play an actual melody. Uh, I was reading where Peter Tork of the Monkees complained that the... Um, the playing was too whimsical. I almost played it like, like a flute and didn't really do anything cool with it. But what's really neat about this, I think, is that it shows that it can be used as just a regular instrument. And well, here is the, uh, the, the keyboard bit of Star Collector as played by Paul Beaver in the monkey song Star Collector.
Star Collector by the Monkees. There you go, with uh, Paul Beaver playing that keyboard riff there. But still, it's not gaining a lot of traction as a musical instrument at, at this point, even though you have all kinds of crazy experimentation going on. You have Pet Sounds, you've got Abbey Road, you've got all these great albums coming out, but people still aren't embracing the synthesizer, largely because it's not very reliable. It goes out of tune a lot. It's a, it's a very complex instrument, and it's just way easier just to get a standard electric piano and, of course, you know, guitar, bass, and drum sorted. That being said, there are a couple of other groups that do use the Moog in a limited capacity. Uh, a group you may have heard of called the Rolling Stones use it on their Satanic Majesty's Request. Uh, I believe that was in 1967 or 1968. The Doors actually did use a Moog on their 1967 album, Strange Days, but it's mostly uh, the electric organ that they, that they are known for. The Moog isn't used widely on it. And then the Birds, uh, I found out, used it on their album, The Notorious Bird Brothers. Indeed, Roger McGuinn, uh, the lead guitarist and singer for the Birds, quite the electronics buff, is introduced to the Moog by Robert Moog at the Monterey Pop Festival, and uh, they bring it into the studio to use on that album. Uh, he plays it a little bit. Paul Beaver, again, uh, the guy with the session musician uh, from the Monkees sessions there, who's kind of the expert session musician on the Moog, plays it mostly on the Birds, Notorious Bird Brothers. Uh, but yeah, but for the most part, it really isn't being embraced uh, by pop and rock musicians as much as you think it would be, again, largely because of the cost. Now, I read too just now that uh, I, I told you that the Monkees could afford it because they had money behind them. Actually, Mickey Dolan bought his own Moog and brought it to the studio. Uh, but I guess they are making enough money at that point that he could afford it. And uh, another guy that could afford it uh, a fellow named Keith Emerson, you may know from Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, I believe he was, he was in King Crimson, I think, or was he another group? I don't remember. But anyway, he goes on to form Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. And when he forms Emerson, Lake, and Palmer well, with the other, the other two, Carl Palmer, the drummer, and uh, Greg Lake, uh, Greg Lake came, maybe Greg Lake came from King Crimson. I'm not, I don't remember now. Uh, prog rock fans, please email me. But anyway, uh, it's this record contract, because they're, they're essentially a super group. They've come from other groups, and this, they immediately get a record contract from Atlantic Records, which allows Keith Emerson to buy this huge Moog uh, synthesizer, which is, of course, again, very expensive at the time, and uh, he doesn't even know how it works. <laughs> I was reading a quote where he said, uh, there was no instruction manual. I took it out of the box. I'm like, I don't even know how to turn it on. So anyway, but he ends up using that. He uses it so much, in fact, that uh, Robert Moog and the Moog Company sent him prototypes to get his opinion on things. Uh, another big Moog user is a, a fellow, uh, later to be a gal, named Walter Carlos, uh, today known as Wendy Carlos. And really, she is probably uh, gives us the next big step forward in synth pop uh, coming in 1968 and does it not through pop music, but through classical music with an album called Switched on Bach. And Switched on Bach, as it the title may you know, lead you to uh, understand, is that it's um, it's Bach compositions uh, all done on the Moog synthesizer. Again, uh, this is done with a producer and a singer, by the way, named Rachel Elkind. We'll hear from her uh, later uh, in the series, in the next episode, uh, most likely. But um, she's also a, a talented producer and helps uh, then Walter, now Wendy Carlos, produce this album. Same problems that everybody's having. The thing goes out of tune. It's very hard to use. It's very hard to keep recreating the same sounds when you need them. But in any case, uh, 1968, we get the album Switched on Bach from Wendy Carlos. And well, here's the uh, first blast of that album.
That's Bach Kanata number 29, BWV 29. I don't know what that means. The subtitle is Where Duncan Dare Got. So if you know what that means, uh, good on you. I, I, I reckon that's German. But uh, yeah, so that gets people interested in synthesizers uh, again a little bit. Uh, you know, Robert Moog is involved. And just like with um, with Keith Emerson, you know, uh, Wendy Carlos's input is very valuable at this point into making the synthesizers better. Uh, but we're not going to have another leap forward for another couple of years, which we're going to discuss uh, in the next episode. But uh, we do get a pop song that uses uh, the synthesizer, the Moog and it is by a fellow named Gershon Kinsley. Now, you may know the song, Popcorn. It's got an interesting history. Uh, it's first released in 1969 by a man named Gershon Kinsley. He uh, records it with a band in 1970. One of the guys in that band re-records it under the name Hot Butter, and that's the version that you know uh, widely from the 70s. Maybe we'll play that in the next episode when we discuss the 70s, but Gershon Kinsley gets this out first in 1969. Uh, the hot butter version does make some improvements. It's th three years pass between the two of them, and I think the uh, the um, hot butter version is a little tighter. But this is uh, this becomes a hit, I believe, uh, in many countries. I believe it enters the top 40 in the United States. And uh, well, this is Popcorn by Gershon Kinsley from 1969. the original version by Gershon Kinsley. I looked it up. Gershon Kinsley did not have a hit with this song, uh, nor did the band he recorded it with after. But the Hot Butter version is a worldwide smash. And we'll listen to that in the next episode because the fact that that gets re-released and does as well as it does kind of plays into our whole story. But we are going to stop at that point and we will pick things up uh, in 1971. Uh, in the meantime, uh, we're going to go to a, a song of the week here on PS Tape Recorder. And our song of the week this week comes from... Ava Max, who's had a song of the week on here before with a song called Kings and Queens. Now, I'm looking here at her discography. Uh, I guess Kings and Queens got to 13. I didn't think it did that well in this country. It took a long time to climb the chart. Uh, you may know her uh, Sweet But Psycho was uh, one of her songs back in 2018. But um, yeah, uh, Kings and Queens went to 13, and My Head and My Heart came out in, actually in November 2020, but I'm still hearing it on Radio 1, and I'm still liking it. So uh, here is our song of the week. It is from Ava Max. Uh, next week, of course, we'll do uh, the History of Synthpop Part 2, but in the meantime, here's Ava Max, My Head and My Heart, our song of the week on PF's tape recorder. So long, and thanks for listening. Baby, now and then I think about me now and who I could have been and then I picture all the perfect that we lived 
Till I cut the strings on your tiny violin oh. My mind's got a my, my mind of its own right now And it makes me hate me I'll explode like a dynamite if I can't decide, baby